0: Now you can find, listen, and subscribe to Chilling with Ensen, the local Danfoss Climate Solution podcast, in your RevTools app. Download it from danfoss.com. Service and support downloads. I'm Jan Sanderson from Danfoss Climate Solution. Thank you for listening to another one of our podcasts about refrigeration and related topics. We, that's Jörg Saar, John Broughton and myself, sat out to do a podcast about commissioning. But what came out of this was actually two podcasts, this one and the second episode that will be published later uh, good morning, Jörg, and good morning, John. Uh, how are you today?
1: Hello, Jens. Fine, at least on my side. Don't know about John, but um, I'm fine. Thank you. Yep, good morning. Yeah, everything
2: is uh, fine in my world.
1: That's good to hear. And that's hopefully the same for you, Jens.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm good, uh, as usual. Um, this podcast is this podcast is about uh, commissioning, uh, and we we probably need sort of setting the frames first before we actually dive into the talks and chats and discussions and whatever about a system. We assume that everything is in place, everything is mounted. The pipes has been the pipe runs has been done and we are all the soldering welding etc cetera, etc cetera, has been done so it's it's actually the time now where you decide when to switch the bottom and say go so john if we start with you now we have all the black nails and maybe a roasted eyebrow here and there but then, now, what
2: now what <clears throat> yeah i I guess the 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 first thing for me would be, as you say, we've installed the system, everything's been you know designed and selected, etc um the first thing that I would always do is you just go through the system, just walk around, make sure that everything is is correct, you know electrically, mechanically, make sure that everything um works as it as it should before you actually start the commissioning process um so have we wired up all the fans um is is everything done and we're we're ready to roll sometimes that quick walk around of the system is quite useful because you might notice something that that hasn't been done agree
1: that's that's very useful to have a look again to to not assume whether everything is okay but really see it and check it and say, okay, that looks good. Now I can I can continue I, or I can start the commissioning. Agree. Agree. Um, I guess the, sorry, Jörg, go on. No, no go, go ahead because no. I've, I've, <laughs> I wanted to, to say, yeah, and then what is the next step? Um, it is not... Turn the switch and switch it on. There are some steps in between.
2: <laughs> we hope there are some steps in between. Um, I guess the, the the first part of the, the commissioning process will be to make sure that the system is leak-tight. And generally, you would do that um, with a, a strength test, a pressure test, um, and, a, and a leak test. And if we follow EN378, which is a European norm, but there is a European standard, which Jörg, you know far better than than me, Uh, sorry, a a global standard.
1: Yes, and that is 4159. So ISO 4159 and EN378, that they are kind of word by word the same. They are very much harmonized. So whatever we talk about, whether it's EN378 or ISO 4159, that those are very general standards, global standards, the, the ISO and they talk about how a system should look like, what you, what you need to do to have a safe system. Excellent,
2: that uh, makes life a lot easier. So generally we would do a, uh, a strength test on a system and that's normally held for about 15 minutes. Um, what I would generally do is increase the pressure to about five, about five bar initially and and check for leaks. And if you have any leaks, generally five bar would be enough to identify those. Um, This test pressure that might need to be witnessed by a notified body and that strength test is is normally done um, either at a minimum of 1.1 times PS or 1.43 times PS. Um, Then we would generally reduce that uh, pressure down to PS, which is our maximum allowable Working pressure, and you should hold that for 24 hours. I know that's not done on site because people have time pressures, etc. But uh, generally, if it was a, a large system, you would do a, a tightness test, a leak test for 24 hours just to make sure that that system is leak-tight. That's the most important thing. We don't want any refrigerant uh, to leak out the system. That's bad for the environment, but it's also bad for the running system.
0: So you you wouldn't, say, uh, push up the the pressure even further and then say, okay, let's go for 12 hours instead?
2: No, no, you you have to abide by the rules because obviously a system has a uh, maximum working pressure, um, or a maximum ma- maximum allowable pressure, and we shouldn't exceed that. We should only exceed that by either one point one or one point four three.
1: Yep. And then, then when you have done your your pressure test to make sure your system is leak tight, um, of course you you now need to get whatever you have put into the system out of the system again to charge it with refrigerant. Right.
2: Correct. <clears throat> Correct. Um, And there was uh, when I was much younger um, as a trainee, I always thought we were just taking the air out the system when we did a vacuum test or, uh, you know, the dehydration procedure as it is. And yes, we're taking everything that we just put in out. But we're drying the system, we're drying any moisture that's within the refrigeration system. So you're not just taking the, the air out of the system, you're actually lowering the pressure so that the any moisture that's present within the system boils off. So we have very, very uh, minute amounts of moisture within the refrigeration system before we start and charge.
1: And, and that's a very good point, John, uh, good that you mentioned that, because coming back to the pressure test, I mean, we, we put something in the system to do a pressure test. Of course, that is not going to be water. That's very clear. So that's going to be a gas. And the gas we are talking about is dry nitrogen dry to avoid that we put additional water into the system, additional humidity, that's why dry nitrogen. And nitrogen, because you don't want to add any oxygen there, so not compressed air, it's really dry nitrogen that you're going to put into the system. Sometimes there might be an additional little bit of helium or, or whatever, or any gas that allows you to find a leak a little bit better. Um, but typically, it's dry nitrogen that you put into the system. That's and a then very you need to good. get that out again.
2: That's a very good point, Jörg. Um, I know in, in some literature that I've seen over the years, um, and I know there's been one or two accidents on site where people have used oxygen uh, for pressure testing, mm-hmm. which, uh, yeah, is definitely not the way to go. <clears throat> No, definitely not the way to go. But yeah, a, a very good point. Must use dry nitrogen um, because we don't want to add any more moisture into the system than we uh, already have from
1: the installation process. Yeah. And you you mentioned that we pull a vacuum then and in case there is still some humidity left, which might have been in the oil in the system before or wherever. Um then what what's gonna happen then and, and how how deep do we need to go to get that that moisture out of the system? If we if we talk with my Danfoss hat on,
2: um <clears throat> generally it's 0.67 millibar as a, a level of vacuum. Um mm-hmm. in the old days it was 30 inches of uh uh mercury um on your uh, gauges uh, but 0.67 millibar, and it's fair to say always measure the pressure within the system um, on the system. Please don't measure it at the vacuum pump itself. Um, you know, that that's not a good place to measure the, the actual pressure in the system. Um, generally, you would pull down to that level, 0.67 millibar, wait half an hour. If the pressure rises rapidly, the system's not airtight, um so that means you've got a leak in the system um if the pressure increases slowly then you've still got some moisture inside the system so then you'd break the vacuum with dry nitrogen um, and then restart the vacuum procedure again till you get down to 0.67 millibar Wait half an hour and see if that pressure increases if the pressure doesn't increase then your system is let's say dry
1: and that's that's a really valid point and important point that you mentioned weight whether the pressure increases if it increases as you mentioned extremely fast then okay the system is not airtight then you get air into the system. so it's not sufficient to just pull down to to the level John mentioned 0.65 millibar and then immediately stop because you say okay now all the air is out of the system it is air that you want to get out of the system or the nitrogen that was in the system because of the pressure test and you want to get the humidity out. That's why you need to wait. You need to give the humidity time in case there is still humidity to evaporate, to, to show that the pressure goes up. So to kind of say, I'm still there. So you need to give that a little bit of, of time. It's mm-hmm. not sufficient to pull the vacuum and immediately start charging
2: yeah yeah very important and probably other practical things to say regarding the process itself make sure the vacuum pump is sized correctly for the size of the system that you're working on so don't take the smallest vacuum pump that you can because it's nice and light and put it on a very large um, you know system that's going to take forever uh, to pull a vacuum Um, also don't use quarter line if you can use 3 eighths hoses things like that to assist with the process of actually pulling um, the moisture out the system
1: yeah you're right because i mean that the vacuum pump we talk about a vacuum of 0.67 millibar that we want to reach so any pressure drop that you are having there because of a, a small hose or or extremely long connections between the vacuum pump and the system they they add up here so you might have the 0.67 at the vacuum pump but within the system then you have a higher pressure but you want to go down to 0.67 in the system that means the vacuum pump needs to go even further down if you have too many obstacles there so that's why you want to remove them mm-hmm. we got diameters on the hoses and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah
2: definitely and also change the oil in the vacuum pump on a regular basis as well that's most important oh. yeah and then so, well,
1: and then we are, have the vacuum and we come to the interesting question how much refrigerant do i get into the system right <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and uh, thinking back to, to my time, which is a, a long time ago, we never calculated a refrigerant charge. We just basically charged to a full sight glass. Um, and, and that was done. Um, I think nowadays, you know, with, with different refrigerants, different blends, uh, and also the, the cost of refrigerant, um, it is worth estimating the refrigerant charge in your system and there's you know many ways to do that no i don't think anybody has a, a absolute foolproof way to get it down to the exact um, volume of refrigerant um, but there is some let's say guides
1: that you can do to use that um, yeah and just one remark maybe regarding the estimation as you say it it is an estimation you cannot get that down to to 10 grams or something like that as a as a real calculation however the estimation helps you as well to check whilst you charge whether everything is okay so let's assume you estimate your charge should be somewhat around two kilograms and now you start charging the system and um, You you charge, you reach 1.8, 1.9, 2, 2 2.1, and it just keeps going, 2.5, 3, I mean, now the bell should ring and say, wait a minute, there is something wrong. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I should stop doing what I'm doing. Um, because you estimated two kilos, and and you are already at three, so something is not okay. As it looks like, that's that's another indication that estimation to show you where roughly you should end to to give you another checkpoint.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree, agree. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges you see is a lot of systems are overcharged, um, because. We, would, we were always taught to charge to a full sight glass. But I think in some systems and, and some refrigerants now, um, you can charge to a full glass, but then you can keep charging because the sight glass is full. So it'll always show full no matter how much refrigerant you put in there. Mm. So it is a matter of checking your pressures, temperatures, um, superheat, subcooling, et cetera, around the system to actually get to a point where you're happy with the let's say, the operation of the refrigeration system pressures and temperatures that you feel that you have the right level
1: of charge in the system. Agree. And, and, and you talked about an estimated refrigerant charge. Um, there's probably the question, how do I do that? I mean, the filter dryer is pretty simple and yeah. the liquid line that's full of liquid. So, you can do reasonably a simple calculation there. But what about the other components <clears throat> where you have a mixture like evaporators, condensers? How do you do that? Mm, that's a very good
2: question. And I've spent some time speaking to various people within the industry to get some some figures. And again, this is a very approximate way to do it. But... The way that I've come down to is if you take 20% volume of your liquid receiver, uh, 25% volume of your evaporator coil and 33% volume of your condenser and then 100% volume of your liquid line, that will give you a, a working estimation of your refrigerant charge. It's not perfect um, and it's maybe a little bit up and down, but that's a sort of consensus of minds within the industry to say, it's somewhere around there. Mm. Um, you know, some people argue that, yeah, maybe in your evaporator you've only got 15% um, liquid and the rest is vapor and the same with the condenser. Um, but it, it, it's it, it's a guide, nothing more than that. But that will give you somewhere there or thereabouts your uh, charge of that
1: refrigeration system. It's. it's a, just, I, just, I agree, but and and you still need to to somehow have a have a way to find out. Then in the end, um, what's not your or where where do you stop, right? Um, this is an estimation, and then you still have need to have some way to say, okay, but now the system has enough charge. How do you do that?
2: Mm-hmm. I, I, that really comes down, Yorg, to to measuring your pressures, temperatures around the system. Um, Superheat on the evaporator and subcooling on the condenser. So, and particularly subcooling. If you've got uh, any amount of subcooling, even if it's half a degree, one Kelvin, uh, on your condenser, then you know that you are getting liquid out of your uh, condenser. So there or thereabouts, you know that you have the right level of charge.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you can you can estimate your uh, charge uh if it is okay when 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 the system runs but Mm -hmm. in in the charging process what would you prefer to go a bit above your estimate or a bit (coughs) below your estimate
1: i would start um with below and that's why i would start my measurement and and let's take an example again let's say you have a larger system you need to charge ten kilograms. So for the first seven kilograms, um, you you just can charge that refrigerant. You have f- you're away from from that point where where you can really get the first good measurements. You don't need to try to start. To measure a subcooling when you have charged one kilogram and your estimation is ten kilos, but from seven, eight onwards, I would I would really continue charging and then do the measurement, and and that gives you an indication what's going on. It might be nine point two kilograms, it might be ten point eight, right? But but mm. somewhere in that range, you you probably end up when your estimation is ten. And that's that's where around the 10, that's why you want to measure when do I have to, to stop charging? When is the system really full?
2: Yeah, I mean this there's, there's some I mean, I agree, Jorg, I would probably dump charge the system first, um, into the liquid line, into the receiver. So we've got some refrigerant in there before we start the compressor. Um, Never start a compressor in a vacuum.
1: Um,
2: If you don't have enough refrigerant in the system to um, get cool gas coming back to the machine, particularly a scroll compressor, you're going to get a very high discharge temperature and you'll damage the scroll set even during the commissioning process. So always make sure that you have enough refrigerant in the system first before you start the compressor. Um, Don't start the compressor and then start and charge please dump charge first. Um, As Yog said, if you've got, if you estimate 10 kilos, dump charge at least five or six to make sure that we have some refrigerant in the system before we start the machine. Um, And when you're in that charging process, also keep a close eye on discharge temperature, make sure that that compressor is not getting too hot. Um, Because if we don't have the right level of charge, We don't have the right level of cool suction gas coming back to the machines keep it nice and cool so we have to be a little bit careful on that on on the commissioning process Um, particularly when we're working on lt rooms for example
1: and and, um, just to mention that you said don't start the compressor under vacuum fully agree and and then um, when you have enough refrigerant start your compressor do your measurements Um, it might find the it might sound a bit um, strange, funny, but it helps a lot when you charge the right refrigerant. Because if you do your measurements and the refrigerant in the system is not the one that you want to have in the system and that you expect, then your measurements will not help you. Right? Um, you Correct. you calculate your subcooling, and if you have the wrong refrigerant, then your everything is is wrong there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I'll always make sure to check the data plate on the compressor condensing unit system um, that that compressor is approved for use with the refrigerant that you're actually charging into the system. Um, that, that's very important these days. Um, and then, you know, when you've dumped charge your system and you're, you're putting in what I call the, the trim charge, um, you know, you put that into the suction line, not in liquid form, um and until the system has reached you know, the stable operation, we're happy with the pressures, temperatures, superheat, subcooling super on the system. What I would generally do, and again, it's difficult when you're commissioning a system because if you're commissioning a, a cold room, for example, the cold room starts off at ambient temperature and then obviously pulls down to um, the desired room temperature. So generally the way I was taught was that you would you would charge until you're you're happy with the system and then when you can see the expansion valve opening the sight glass might flash a little bit and then it'll clear and you know then roughly that you're there or thereabouts correct so that's another way to to sort of make sure that you're happy with the charge
1: and then um there is a point when when you're happy with the charge and your system is charged your system is already running because you have switched on the compressor to do all the subcooling measurements and so on. And now the system is running and and you're happy. Well, almost, in my opinion, because <laughs> you still should do certain checks <clears throat> to say the system is really running as you want it to be. One is to do the measurement of the subcooling, another one is to to measure the superheat whether your superheat is okay or not and if both are okay that's already a good indication that everything is fine what you do of course whilst you charge the system you already check at that point i mean your compressor is that one running if if no you you feel that immediately when when you switch it on it's not running but you still check whether your fans or your pumps, depending on whether you have air or or a liquid, there that you cool down, whether they are running, because you need to make sure that that all that is running fine. That's that's part of of the commissioning part of the checking when whilst you you charge the system. You are
2: quite correct, um, Jorgen. We actually missed a little bit of of the discussion because. We, we sort of mentioned that the pre-start process um, and that is, you know, making sure that, that, that the system is correct. And one thing that I come across not that often uh, on site is that sometimes you'll go to a system and maybe a service valve is closed or partially closed. Mm. Mm. So always check that the, that the valves on the system are in the correct position before you start uh Pulling a vacuum, pressure testing, charging, et cetera. Um, Because, you know, just because, and I talk about a condensing unit here, don't assume just because it's come from a factory that all the service valves are in the right position. Um, I have seen systems where the, the receiver valve, for example, is not fully closed, but, you know, pretty partially closed. So always check the position of the valves before you start the process that's uh, just something from experience
1: that, that's a good point and and you you mentioned something that that just generated a thought <laughs> in my mind pressure switch when and how would you test a pressure switch
2: the official way and the way that I was always taught which is uh, you would even before you would start the commissioning process, you would connect a, uh, in my day, a refrigerant cylinder, but we can't talk about that now. So uh, you do it with a controls pump and you would set your pressure switch with a controls pump and your uh, meter and make sure that it is at the setting that you want it to be, rather than just relying on looking at the, uh, where the pointer is showing on the scale, we would set it with a controls pump. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many people uh do that these days um occasionally i get questions saying uh systems not working and you ask them if they've set the lp and hp switch and they say well it's factory set it came on a condensing unit um so they should always be set before you start the commissioning process at least to roughly where you want them to be
1: agree because I mean there are enough condensing units which are multi refrigerant nowadays so you can use different refrigerants and the different refrigerants require a different high pressure setting maybe and depending mm-hmm. on what what system you have even a different low pressure setting so <laughs> you you should at least set it according to the scale
2: correct correct and the hp setting should never be above the PS of the system. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's quite a common occurrence because you might go to a site where, uh, let's say, the system has been tripping out on high pressure due to high ambient or dirty condenser, uh, and somebody might have just wound the HP up a little bit.
1: Yeah, you're right about that. So, uh, So
2: yeah, setting of HP LP switch, very important.
1: And then I would like to come back to uh, subcooling. You mentioned that during the charging, you measure subcooling to check whether your charge is okay or not. And you measure the subcooling out of the condenser. And I totally agree to that, that's fine. When when you are done with your charging and you are happy with your charging, There is still something you should do regarding the subcooling. You should really have a look at what's between the condenser and the expansion valve, because at the expansion valve, you still want to have liquid refrigerant. You don't want to have flash gas reaching the expansion valve. And you might now say, yeah, but I have subcooling out of the condenser. Where should that come from? Well, there are some things in between like maybe some valves and the filter dryer and so on and um it's not the first time that we've seen filter dryers which are blocked with whatever a cloth or uh, something that that somebody has forgotten in 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 the pipework
2: yes yeah uh, i think the, the the best one that i saw was uh, when you get a dryer or a sight glass, it comes with a plastic cap on the end of the connections. Oh, yes. uh, I found one of those actually stuck inside an AKV20 valve some years ago. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't the uh, the dryer or the sight glass that had a blockage. It was actually the expansion valve um, that that had a blockage. But that's a very good point. And one thing during the installation process, if you've got a very long run of uh, pipe to the expansion device put a sight glass just before the expansion device, because then you can look and see, and you will be, uh, it's very clear whether you've got sub cold good quality of liquid hitting your expansion device. So if it's a 10 meter pipe run, yeah, shouldn't be an issue, but if you've got, you know, 30, 40, 50 meters of pipe, um, just put a sight glass in front of the expansion device, and then you can you can see physically the quality of the liquid that you've got hitting the valve.
1: Agree. Yeah.
2: Just, just on the subcooling, Jörg, What, just what? Uh, in a degree of subcooling, would you expect on a packaged condensing unit, for example?
1: Well, only a few Kelvin. So, if you ha- you mentioned the the one one and a half Kelvin out of out of the condenser, and then you usually go to a receiver. And now there, there, we can start a very long discussion. What happens in the receiver? Is the subcooling killed or not? Because you have gas and liquid in the receiver. Um, but typically, the receiver then releases a little bit of heat as well to the ambient because the liquid is warmer than ambient temperature. So, what you can expect, in my opinion, is that you get something like one, two, maybe three three Kelvin subcooling in the liquid line after the receiver. I wouldn't expect more than that. What do you think?
2: I would I would say the same thing. Um, on a traditional condenser unit, yeah, half a Kelvin, one Kelvin subcooling, maybe a little bit more. Um, but you're not going to get much more because it won't have a dedicated subcooling coil in the condenser. Um, but so long as you've got subcooled liquid, uh, everything is fine. The expansion valve will give the the right capacity.
1: One um, let let's assume you 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 get ten um, out of the system when 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 you're ready charging and you run the system. What 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 then? Then
2: um, if you have a high de- if you have a high degree of subcooling, then your expansion valve will be oversized because you'll get more capacity out of the valve. And I was just going to say. A very good indication that you don't have enough subcooling or any subcooling is you won't achieve the correct superheat on your evaporator because the expansion valve will be fully open all the time trying to feed that evaporator because the quality of liquid is not very good. So that's a good indication on the site that you have poor quality of liquid at your expansion valve because the valve will be uh, open you know, constantly at a hundred percent trying to feed the evaporator and you'll and you won't get your superheat down on the evaporator.
1: Uh, agree. And um, the, the reason why I asked what what if you have that high subcooling? Um that tells you something is a bit strange. And you really need to take a step back and and check a couple of of points. Um, and there is one point which might come from from that and which you can check and should check as well. Look at your condensing temperature and look at your air temperature on, on an air cooled condensing unit. And if you all of a sudden see a very big difference there between your condensing temperature and your air temperature, then something mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be right and of course the fan should be running but if you still have that high temperature difference that gives you an indication that you might still have non condensable gases in in the system and that might lead to the impression that you have a high subcooling so so that's i just want to say there are some some flags which say hey please double check here again these non-typical temperature differences, whether it's a subcooling that is far too high, whether the, the the temperature difference between condensation or condensing and ambient temperature is a good deal too high. Those those are indications that you need to double check some stuff mm. again.
2: Yeah, good point. How would you check for non-condensables in your system, York?
1: Well, one thing, as as mentioned, is this this condensing temperature that is far too high because there is non-condensable gas sitting in your condenser, taking away space in the condenser and and condensing area, and that's why your condensing temperature is is too high, a good deal too high. That's that's one good indication.
2: Just thinking of a typical uh, cool condenser what temperature split across would you expect from condensing to ambient
1: 10 12 15 kelvin in in that range depending on how big your condenser is um whether that is a is is kind of decent sized or a bit more tight the when when it's a bit more tight then you you get more to the 15 maybe 18 kelvin but I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect more than that.
0: And this is where we kept talking for another 30 to 40 minutes. So thank you for listening in on this podcast. You will meet Jörg Saar and John Broughton again in the next episode. If you may have questions or comments to this or any other podcast, please post your question in the social medias where you usually find Danfoss, typically LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. Thank you.